it's just really beautiful to think about a theology that places value in every single person, regardless of what they believe in. Welcome to the Western Friend Podcast, a co-production of Western Friend and the Soul Force Ones Podcast. Western Friend, the official publication of Quakers in Pacific, North Pacific, and Intermountain Yearly Meetings, is teaming up with the hosts of the Soul Force Ones Podcast to explore questions of faith, purpose, and practice. Episodes will be released each month, and you are invited to join us in a follow-up conversation 10 days after the release of each episode. You can find the link for the conversations in the episode notes or at westernfriendpodcast.buzzsprout.com. On today's episode, we chat with Jose Santos Was, the Director for Justice Reform with the Friends Committee on National Reform. We explore how he came to Quakerism as a young black Latino man, the meaning he finds in his work, and some of the urgent topics he's working on at the moment. Following the interview, we do a quick remix where John and I reflect on some key takeaways from the conversation. And now, if you're ready, let's get to it. Yeah, really excited to have you join us today. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. So we're, we're going to jump right into it. You you began your keynote remarks for the Intermountain Yearly Meeting with I'm a Black Latino. And I wanted to explore that a little bit. There's There's Black people, of course. There's Black culture, there's the Black experience. What does it mean to be Black? It means to have darker skin. It means to come from a diaspora, from a diaspora of uh, people who were stolen um, from their from their native lands of Africa and placed in different lands across the across the globe. It means beauty, it means creativity, it means being able to create from suffering. It means justice. I'm black, but I'm from a lineage of Latin American descendants, and I stand on the shoulders of giants, of uh, people like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Byron Rustin, uh, John Lewis, people who came in this country way way before me um, and created a path of justice that I can build this life that I have today. Hey, so I got to admit, Jose, um, when, when I saw that we were interviewing you and I, and I saw the first remarks that I'm a, a black Latino Quaker, my initial thought, even cause I didn't actually, uh, see your keynote. I read the transcript and I assumed that you were old because Quakers are generally very old. And I was really excited, right? Because you're black and Latino and I'm in Oregon where it's very white and and Quaker, the Quaker community is very old and white. And so I made the misconception of kind of thinking that you were an old man. Uh, I think you're probably around the same age as me. So I guess I was, my next question is like, what does it mean to be a black Latino Quaker? A young black Latino. Right, right. Yes, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. So it's really interesting. Um, I came to Quakerism because of the beauty of the community that I find myself in working at FCNL, the Friends Committee on National Legislation. Um, I was going through some health problems and uh, they were really there for me. Um, And that came on top of the already strong culture and heritage of doing 
justice works across the globe that Quakers have been um, instrumental in uh, for decades now. Um, and I just really wanted to be a part of that spiritual community that that held that guiding light at the center um, that brought that spirituality to doing good works. Latino, I come from poverty. Uh, my grandmother was raised poor. Um, and she she emigrated first to Puerto Rico, then to then to, then to New York City. So I had that lineage of a strong, uh, persevering um, Latina women who gave me the life that I have today. And I'm black because there's a legacy of slavery in the Dominican Republic. I mean, it was one of the biggest destinations on the slave route, um, including Cuba, Brazil. Um, and other countries such as Guyana. And yeah, I think that that kind of covers it. Yeah, you know, Colin and I, we, we like to often talk about purpose and practice. Um, and, and I appreciate your journey to Quakerism in, in the sense that we often talk, uh, we talk about faith and practice within Quakers, right? I think some Quakers approach it as very much a faith, other it's, it's a matter of practice in terms of sitting in silence and in contemplation and discernment. And I really appreciate your, your journey. I think it's very similar to my mind, not that I haven't done the work that you, you've done. Um, and, and I'm very inspired by that. But in terms of the outwardness, doing the work, the outer work, and how that kind of led you in, in a sense, it's the paradox of going in to go out, going out to go in, how oftentimes people get lost in this conception of God being external to us. Right. Um, and, and I don't know if you, if you could share a little bit more about your work, a commitment to justice and equity, and then how that translates into this meaningfulness and fulfillment of, of the spirit. So I really like the way you put it, that going out to go in. I, as I said in my, in my talk, um, I really lost my faith. Um, I came into a place of uh, paradox where how can people who are just like me uh, be going to hell because they don't worship the same Christ or the same God that I that I, that I worship. And um, I just really had this commitment to doing just works in the world. And I was, in a way, being a Quaker without knowing that I was a Quaker. And I've heard this said a lot. Uh, I've, I've heard this said a lot of times before, but I was a Quaker before I knew I was a Quaker. And works are such an important part of my faith and doing for my fellow person is so key and instrumental to my faith. That's why I was led to Quakerism. And I think for me, finding that still small voice of God inside of me is um, something that really <clears throat> powers that work to do justice and to, and to do good in the world. Yeah, you, and you you mentioned and described yourself as a baby Quaker, and I, yeah, and, and it's interesting this idea of imposter syndrome, right? That that many of us Black and Brown people experience of, of not fitting in or not belonging, not being enough. And I've I've questioned that about myself as a Quaker because I don't I didn't grow up as a Quaker. I don't know a lot about. I'm still learning, as I think you you very much can attest to um, that idea of what it means to be a Quaker. Because I think I from what I've read, what drew me to Quakerism was essentially this the, the notion that they've always been on the right side of history. You know, when shit's gone down, they've 
obviously, you know, there, there's exceptions to the rule, but generally speaking, they've been on the right side um, in terms of justice and equity. And, and that consistency, I think, really resonated with me. But yeah, that idea of being a baby Quaker and still still learning and still, I think, aspiring to do more, be more. Yeah, I think I'm just so used to and I've been steeped in faith that relies heavily on sacraments, that relies heavily on sermons and a preacher at the at at the altar. And I think that for me it's a lot of unlearn be, being a Quaker is a lot of unlearning that and trying to teach myself how to commune with God without those outward trappings. I've just seen so many Quakers before attend meeting for decades before they actually become members. And for me, I, I just felt a deep, and, a, a deep and strong connection that after about two years, I think it was enough for me to say yes to something that I want to be a part of. Um, so I describe myself as a baby Quaker because I felt like I was still unlearning what I was so used to in faith and relearning, well, learning for the first time um, what it means to have a faith and a practice of being a Quaker. I wanted to just ask a question about language. There's so much that we got in your keynote. I have a bunch of notes and I was like, oh, we could talk about so many things. But throughout, you also mentioned language and I think speaking French in the Dominican Republic and sort of being called Haitian is like a slur and also speaking Spanish when you share about your family and certain sayings that you were told growing up, right? You you go into Spanish and in, in your pronouns here on the Zoom call, you right? You have he, him, el. And I think a lot of times you talk about standpoint theory. And if we look at like intersectionality, we look at a lot of different identities. And a lot of the time language is influential in the way that we're read and how we experience the world, but it's not always maybe given or acknowledged the way it should be. And so I was kind of curious, you talk about Spanish, French, English. Could you share at all maybe about like your linguistic journey, speaking multiple languages and maybe how that connects to the work that you do, if it does? Sure. So um, I was raised speaking Spanish. My first language is Spanish. My grandmother spoke to me in Spanish. She was my primary, my primary caretaker. Once I got to school is when I started learning English. Um, and developing that personality because I have a different personality in Spanish than what I do in English and probably my least defined personality because I mainly took it in high school and college is when I speak in French. So I kind of travel in those languages very, very differently. One thing that I find interesting, I'm not sure if this is related, but um, I think it's so important to note because you mentioned pronouns, the use of Latinx and Latina and Latino are things that hasn't really broken into Latin America. Well, well not at least in, in the Dominican Republic because my cousin, who's college educated in Spanish, who I, I'm perpetually reminded that I am not college educated in Spanish. I'm college educated in English. So I've got flaws there. But she said that that, that is very much an American construction, that um, the usage of non-binary descriptors aren't something that's kind of come into being in, Latin, in, in at least Dominican Republic. So I find that really interesting. Um, and I learned this just doing a translation a few months ago. Besides that, I don't think that it really translates 
a lot into the work that I do, probably because I am somebody who specializes in domestic policy. And if I did some, if if I did more immigrant work, it probably would intersect more. Um, if I did refugee work, I think it would intersect more as well. Um, but since I do most of my work in domestic policy, like the mass incarceration system, policing reform, and gun violence prevention, it doesn't really and it doesn't really intersect that much. Yeah, thank you for for sharing there. And I think I love the way in your keynote and right here you're talking about how important context is. So even through language, right, like Latinx and using the X as sort of non-binary language is more of a U.S. construct that doesn't translate into the DR. And I know, I think in Chile, it's like adding ES. Um, mm. So like niñas instead of niños or niñas. So it is very sort of uh, space specific. And you also mentioned in your keynote that you wish you could sort of translate your your humor or your jokes from Spanish into English. And that's so funny because it's so true, right? We are really traveling through different personalities in a way in different languages. Yeah. So. I appreciate the way you you bring that up. Absolutely, thank you. Yeah, and you 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 spoke about growing up in the northern tip of Manhattan in New York City, and that you joked that you were born right outside of the Bronx, the birthplace of hip hop, and that you were so close to being cool. <laughs> and and it was interesting because then later on you quote Howard Thurman who talks about be still and cool in thy own mind and spirit. And this, I, and then so initially, then I immediately think of Lupe Fiasco and the cool. I don't know, we, we talk on the Soul Force Ones about cash, how cash rules everything around us. But cash stands for an acronym of community and contemplation, activism and advocacy. What is it? Act, ad, activism and we have so many advocacy. <laughs> yeah, we got a lot of acronyms and words. Spirituality and Soul Force, hip hop and healing. And I think I was interested in this idea of being cool and, and and relating that to what Howard Thurman talks about in terms of being still and cool and, and the, the distinction between what I think Lupe is critiquing on the cool. Wow, I never put that together. That's, that's actually really cool. I don't know, for me, cool is a confidence. It's uh, mm-hmm. being stayed in who you are, moving through the world with clarity yeah that's that's what i would say about that i appreciate that because i feel like as a kid i wasn't confident and i was trying to be cool and the distinction between what you just described in terms of that confidence that faith in self in who i am as opposed to trying to play a part to assimilate to fit in so that i'm accepted Particularly, I think, for individuals with historically marginalized identities who may be oppressed, suppressed, looked down upon and, and trying to fit in to wherever they may be. But being comfortable with who you are, comfortable with your story, comfortable with where you come from. We, we asked actually Shabre Vickers, right, because you, you, you shared about growing up in poverty. And I think for many people that can be a, a form of embarrassment. Shabre Vickers talks about um, experiencing homelessness. Was there a point where, I don't know if you were, I think oftentimes as kids who, who experience poverty, it can be a form of embarrassment. And then I think at some point in life, there becomes a sense of of pride in terms of what I overcame, the adversity. And, and you know, going back to the first question about the Black experience, my sense of the Black experience as someone who does not identify as Black is 
the resiliency. Um, I think of Beyonce and, and making lemons out of lemonade and, and the overcoming of adversity is oftentimes it's it's the struggle, right? Yeah. Um, I also want to clarify that I myself wasn't raised in poverty. Um, I'm one generation removed. Um, so I got that understanding of what poverty was from my grandmother. That woman would not let would would make it very clear that what's for dinner is what she's cooking is what's going to be available. And I was going to be grateful for it. And I think having that understanding of what it was like to be poor gave me perspective and understanding. And when I moved to New Jersey and started college and um, was, was around wealth for the first time, because I wasn't, in spite of New York being so expensive, I wasn't really around wealth because of the communities that I moved in um, weren't the wealthy communities. So it gave me a perspective. It gave me an understanding of what I had persevered from, uh, well, what my family had persevered from. And in terms of faith in myself and being comfortable in who I am, I think it took me a long time to get to a place where I'm at least now starting to feel comfortable in who I am because these are societies that weren't made for me. I don't act or talk similar to what you would expect an African-American to talk like. I don't look like what you and what you in the U.S. would determine a Latino would look like. And I was just kind of a weird kid growing up. And I had to navigate a lot of different, a lot of different intersections. And it took me a long time to get that assuredness in who I was and knowing that my difference is a strength. And that is something that I take with me. Yeah, it sounds like I, I identify as multiracial. My dad is white. My mother is Portuguese and Indian. And as I was listening to your keynote, I was resonating with a lot of similarities. Uh, there's a lot of differences, of course, I think, in, in our upbringings, perhaps in, 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 our, in our backgrounds. But, but I, I feel like in terms of you're, you're Dominican, you're not multiracial, but it is a very kind of multiracial experience in many ways, right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, Dominican Republic is definitely a melting pot. It was uh, a former colony of Spain where the Spaniards who essentially invaded would bring over family and bring over Spanish people. Um, and then they had families and they were called criollos. And then there was mixing between former slave, former enslaved people and indigenous people. And this all became a melting pot. Um, I have people in my family who, are, who can pass for white. I have people in my family who look a lot like me who are black and all different shades. I identify as black. I don't necessarily identify as African-American because I think that there's a history there and there's a culture there that I don't necessarily have. Um, but I am black and I'm proud of that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what I would say. The Megan Republic is this, this big melting pot or this small melting pot. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is interesting because my mom, I, I, I had often sometimes joked about being black. Obviously I am not black. My mother is from Kenya. She was born and raised there. And it has, similar to your story, has to do with colonization. The Portuguese colonizing Goa and then Goans coming to Kenya to work on the land, on, on the railroads. And that, that case system that you described very much, and it exists in much of the world where 
your indigenous African Kenyans are at the bottom of the pole, and then your Indians who are, you know, a little fairer skin, and then your white people, obviously at the top, the colonizers, right? And, and it's just, it's, it's the same old story, but it's, it's fascinating how the implications, the, the residuals of history still exists today. And, and you see that through the work that you do with, with FCNL, right? I mean, the, the work that you do and how it directly impacts the lives and conditions of black and brown people, of people experiencing poverty, when you talk about policing and, and the, the impacts on our society and, and what you're doing with FCNL to help alleviate that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, there's still a caste system that exists in the Dominican Republic. Um, here in America, um, there's this defined line that y- you are black if you even have one drop of black in you. But there's still colorism. There's still a society that um, privileges people with lighter skin. And like you said, this is something that exists all across the globe. And it's um, one, of the, one of the remnants of white supremacy. Sounds like we're getting into critical race theory, guys. We're going to end up getting canceled because of this. So we can't talk about race anymore, right? Isn't that the the current uh, push in legislation? Yeah. <laughs> Ridiculous. <sighs> Which is fascinating because you're then limiting speech, right? Even just the exploration of, of why this matters. Like That's a part of, of speech and dialogue and discourse and exploration. And Jose, you, you speak about this in your keynote that, that internalized racism, right? Even having family members who kind of spoke to you about being aware or be, be aware of people who look like you, people who are black, right? And, and yeah, that's, that's the thing is, and, and, and you find that in, in all, you spoke to it in terms of, of colorism and how you can experience that even within your own family with people that you love. Um, the, the judgment that I am less than because I came out darker, perhaps, than siblings or cousins or others. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we live in us, well, in societies that teach us that darker skin is less than, it's less pure, um, it has less value. And you internalize that and you move through the world with that uh, falsehood nailed down deep in your mind. And you make actions, and you make and, and and you speak from that. And I saw that a lot in family members and family friends speaking ill of African Americans, of uh, basically saying that black people are the are are the ones who are the criminals who are out here robbing us, and we need to be careful. And we're good. We're hardworking people, and we're not like them. And it's really sad because we were we were the same. It's just just so happens that we come from a different land and speak a different language. Uh, but it's really, really unfortunate that one of the pitfalls of surviving and overcoming racism is overcoming it in our own minds. What was that process for you in working that through your mind? I mean, at some point, did you, when you were younger, perhaps accept this idea that you were inferior because you were black? And, and what was the processing of that to get to the point where you recognized that inherent lie? So for me, it came pretty late. Um, and I'll just be honest. I, yeah, yeah. When I first moved to D.C., 
I made friends who were black and um, I made a statement at one time. I don't know where this was or what I was doing, but I basically said they're just like me. And I realized, and just thinking back on that now, it's like, wow, that's that's a weighted statement right there that to say that they're just like me. Well, yeah, that's obvious. But I, for the longest time, didn't have a lot of black friends and um, was really much insular and really Latino in my in my spaces. And um, I I just had this lie into my 20s, into my early 20s, that I wasn't like them because of what I was taught. It different for me, but I remember in high school, you know, because my mom is Indian. And, and so people would joke, are you Indian, like the feather or the dye? And I got to the point because I'm multiracial where I didn't identify with any of that. I was just like, I'm a I'm a pig. I'm Portuguese, Indian, German, Hungarian, made a joke out of it. It's an acronym. Right. So as to deflect. I think in, in maybe a similar way that you did to disassociate with that because of the negative impression or associations that people were making with that identity group, even though I was very much a part of that. And at the same time, not a part. So that, I think that's a difference where you really identify with your Latino culture because you grew up with that. My mother came here and very much assimilated to American culture, where I think you, you very much grew up with that, that culture um, that, I, that I lacked in, in many ways partly because my father and, you know, his family being white. Don't know if there was a question in there, but I, I guess it's just an acknowledgement that I appreciated your keynote and, and hearing your story, while certainly unique and your own, um, sifting out and trying to find, and I think that's what we try to do oftentimes is to seek out the connections. I think oftentimes there's so much that divides us, right, that we focus on that oftentimes are really arbitrary. Like you think of, we are talking about Catholicism or Islam and, and Jews and how those are Abrahamic faiths, but yet so much emphasis is placed on the differences as opposed to what we share in common. Right. And I think your, your Catholic upbringing, similar, similar to mine, is it's rooted. I think I, maybe one of my questions is why aren't there more Quakers, particularly young Quakers of color from your perspective? So there's a lot there. The first major issue is that you have young people uh, fleeing organized religion because of a lot of what it's represented, that it's uh, judgmental, that it's very much consumed with telling you how to live your life and what makes you worthy, and then just not really finding a place for yourself in that, um, especially for somebody who is queer or, um, or non-binary. Um, it's really hard to find a place in that. There's also the issue of, let's say that you are someone who seeks out faith or religion. I think it could be a little challenging to find a place in Quakerism because the norm of what people know and understand as religion is the charismatic preacher, the moving sermon, the music, um, and that isn't there with Quakerism. I think that with Quakerism, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it. Um, you are communing with God, you yourself, you are cultivating that relationship and you are doing so with a community beside you. And there's ministry that comes from that community at, at times, but it's not going to be like ministry from a preacher. So I think that when you combine those two things together, you see 
Quaker meetings be very much dominated by old white people. And I think you can say the same, well, you can kind of extend that thinking out to black people and African-American people in that you've got some of the most charismatic people who are in black churches. You've got some of the most captivating music in black churches. So it's, I mean, frankly, it's tough to compete with that. And also finding a community that's like you is really nourishing. It's really special. For me, the works were so important. And I found I found a great deal of solace and just love and don't have all the words to explain it in Quaker meeting, in communing with God by myself, with others. And that's why for me, um, it's so special to me. And I, and, and I don't really need the, the music and the preachers and all that um, outward external elements of faith. So I think that that's why you find that there aren't more Quakers out. That's, that's kind of according to me. Was there anything from your, your Catholic upbringing that made you more receptive, perhaps, to Quakerism, or it made you ripe to become a Quaker? I don't think so. I think that I had such a clean break from Catholicism and that it, 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 it sort of made me, in a way, despise religion. Did you go to the... Because I, I think I experienced that similarly in college, where I became... I began to identify with atheism and then being an agnostic. What was your kind of break? Where, where did you go after Catholicism? So for me, I was agnostic. I okay. um, had, I, I had a belief in God and I had a lot of questions, but I didn't have a lot of answers. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of sometimes asked those questions and sometimes I didn't. I don't know where this came from. I mean, I, I would even say it's probably genetic, but um my mom wanted to do social work uh, and so did my sister realities of having families and not being able to make that work financially. Neither of them did that. They Mm. went into different careers. My mom became an accountant and my sister became a speech pathologist. Um, And so I sort of had that bug in me already that um, led me into doing works in my career and I think that that was sort of my that was sort of my consistent thread, in addition to being somebody who prized the position of the Bible in my life, because it was so present in sermons, um, and James chapter two fourteen through seventeen, faith without works is dead, is a really instrumental scripture for me. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to suspect. Is obviously it's grounded in scripture. Uh, I, I found that it's generally a more progressive interpretation of that scripture, right? Like anyone can take that scripture and come to any conclusions. Like look at the far right evangelical, same scripture, different meaning and purpose that they draw from those teachings. Interestingly, my father was a social worker. And, and I think that was, for me, the connection was what you just shared in terms of James chapter two. The, the, the commitment to justice, to, to fighting the good fight, to doing the work, and seeing that demonstrated within the Quaker community. Yeah, like I said, it was instrumental for me. Um, and I, 
I had never really drawn that line from my Catholicism to my Quakerism of that biblical grounding, but yeah, it was there. It's just that I didn't really have the same scriptures that I have today that ground me in, 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 in works and doing good for others. It was uh, a usage of scripture that I think, um, like, I, like, like I said earlier, deals with separation and how you should live your life and less about what you, what you should be doing for others and, and, and the responsibility that you have as, as a member of a community. I wanted to get your thoughts on something. I, I, you know, I, I work at a university campus, as does Colin. And from time to time, you'll have the evangelical preachers who stand out there with their signs telling you that you're going to hell, right? Because you're gay or you're this or that. You don't believe as you do, so you're going to hell. And as, as Quakers, I thought it would be really fascinating if we had someone who was doing that and just I don't know, kind of shared the, the opposite. Like you're going to heaven, just like shared all these positive sayings to, to counteract or to provide what is, I think, the antithesis to, to the evangelical movement in the sense that we were joking, at least I was joking with Colin about perhaps one of the outcomes of our conversation being that we would save Colin. But it's not saving Colin, right? But it's I guess that's the thing with Quakers. Like there's this thing with Quakerism that is resonated with me that resonates with you. It's not so much that there's this desire to convert or save somebody because they don't believe as I do. But I guess it's like, if I know something that works for me, like I want to share it, whether, but it, I think it's this receptiveness to everyone has what they need. And if, if what you need is Jesus or Buddha or Hinduism or atheism for Matt, it, it's good. I just want people to find whatever they need. And it may be this, or it may be that. I just want you to have the tools and the resources that you need to live a full fulfilling life, right? Like, I, I don't think we operate from the standpoint that people are lost. Yeah, I think that's also one of the unfortunate aspects of Catholicism that teaches that you're born in original sin and you have to constantly work against that and you have to be baptized and you have to constantly confess your sins and atone for being human, which we know that being human is imperfection. And for me, it's so powerful, the, the, the core tenet of, of Quakerism, that there's that of God in each and every single one of us, that each and every single one of us is special and has gifts and um, has value and inherent worth. And you don't need to do anything to, to, to get that central truth. And for me, that's really powerful because there have been times in my life where I didn't really see value in myself. And um, it took work for me to get there. And I had this faith that says that I didn't have to work for that value. I mean, I had that value all along. And it's just really beautiful to think about a theology that places value in every single person, regardless of what they believe in. That's beautiful. Very well put. Leads me to think about the purpose that you find in the work that you do. And you mentioned some big issues, right? Police reform and mass incarceration. And I was just curious if you can share a little bit about some of the work that you're doing and how you navigate that work. Cause I know it's, it's very difficult, right? Those are huge institutions 
I'll just leave it there in terms of the question. Like, how is the work going and what are some of the things that, that you're focusing on at the moment? Yeah, so it can get pretty frustrating because you're dealing with Congress, which is a body that is sort of made for paralysis. Um, it, it ostensibly says that it's there to compromise and meet consensus decisions and laws, but honestly, it just kind of gridlocks a lot. Um, so that's frustrating. But I used to also lobby in the private sector. And I sometimes think about what I'm doing. Companies oftentimes pay a $10,000, $25,000 retainer to do. And I'm not doing that for retainer. I'm doing that for justice. That's pretty powerful. And that, for me, is really meaningful. What I'm working on right now, I'm working on following the police reform negotiations that are happening in the Senate currently. And that's a bill that would um, create minimum standards across the 18,000 separate law enforcement jurisdictions across the country um, to make policing less violent and more accountable. Um, one of the main sticking points in, the, in those negotiations are qualified immunity, which basically says it's a court-created doctrine that says in order for a case against a civil case to move forward against a law enforcement agent, you need to have found a separate case that has virtually the same facts and that, and, and that court decided that it was unconstitutional or that someone's constitutional rights were violated, which makes it almost impossible for a civil case to move forward, which is why we need to abolish qualified immunity. We're at least talking about reforming it, which is a start, and also um, reforming the, 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 the second sticking point of those negotiations are reforming the mens rea standard, which is the criminal intent standard for Section 242. That's a statute, 18 U.S.C. Yeah, Section 242. That's a statute that is used to prosecute law enforcement. And we want to change that standard from knowingly, which is very high, to reckless to bring it down so that we can have more criminal prosecution of law enforcement um, when they violate constitutional rights. So that's a lot of what we're focusing on in the police reform bill, in the Senate at least. Um, the bill passed in the House and we're waiting for a negotiated package to come forward in the Senate. I'm also doing work on lifting the ban on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program or SNAP and TANF, or the Temporary Assistance for Native Families, which is what used to be called welfare. These two programs are anti-poverty programs that help people who are at the margins of society. But if you have a drug felony conviction in most states, you can't qualify for them. So I'm trying to lift that ban federally. Um, that's something that's called perpetual punishments because even after your prison term is over or your jail term is over, this follows you for the rest of your life. And these aren't the only collateral consequences. There are about 44,000. Some are very ridiculous, like you can't be a barber even though you used to cut hair in prison. So we're working on that. And then what I'm probably most excited about is um, the work that I'm doing around gun violence prevention. So it's very narrow work um, that, that deals with working in communities with formerly incarcerated people to intercede and interrupt violence. They're called violence interrupters. 
These are people who know the community, who oftentimes were potentially doing some of the same some some of the same activities that are that are happening in the communities that are deemed illegal. So they know how to navigate those spaces. They have a lot of credibility, and they can intercede, offer up alternatives, and stop violence before it, before it even occurs. So I'm working with local elected officials. I'm trying to reach out to Black Lives Matter here in Baltimore, where I live, and also doing some con also having some conversation with local leaders and violence interrupters and in communities to understand their work. And then I want to take that back as a whole um, after I do this outreach around the country to create dedicated federal funds for violence interrupters. Um, because I think that, that that could do a lot with alleviating interpersonal conflict, which is, which is oftentimes at the heart of gun violence in urban communities. Um, in addition to enforcing drug transactions as well. So um, we have these tools that we see work very well to reduce the incidences of gun violence. And I'm pretty excited about that as well. It's a lot of incredible work. It sounds like it's just sort of taking a humanizing lens and fascinating how you mentioned that perpetual punishment, right? How once folks are incarcerated or charged, the entire system just limits their opportunities more and more so what, what chances do folks have, right? If you're right. taking all of these tools away. You mentioned early on a little bit, right? We had reform and you mentioned abolishing. Qualified immunity. Thank you, qualified immunity. And I'm curious because I know I love abolitionist theory. And I think long-term, I think that's the goal. How, do, how does that resonate with you between, because you said, right, reform are sort of the immediate steps that we, we can take. It'll get us forward. How do you feel personally, if you can share about sort of this renewed call for, for abolition? So it's tough, right? Uh, because I still have questions myself. Um, when you deal with domestic violence, when you deal with federal hate crimes, when you deal with incidences of some pretty heinous violence that happens, how do you respond to that without police? That's, I think, a question that's open on a lot of people's minds. In terms of what I do, I'm very limited because I can't really effectuate that kind of change uh, because it's not something that's deemed realistic within the framework of advancing federal legislation. Um, reform is really the only game in town. And I think that local communities who are doing this work are doing tremendous and vital and important work advancing the conversation around abolishing police. I think that, that should continue. Um, those conversations really belong at the local level. I think when you talk about divest and invest, there's a much stronger case to be made because there's a disproportionate and an enormous sum of money that's that goes to police every single year when you have all these needs in the community that go unfunded. Teachers being paid a starting salary of $30,000 a year in, 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 in most cases when they also have to fund some of their own supplies. And we're outfitting law enforcement with military equipment, um, fully automatic weapons, bear cats, tanks, bayonets, sometimes even grenade launchers. And it's just, we're doing way too much with the police when we should be doing a lot more with the community. 
And speaking yeah. of the community, because you you do a lot of work on federal legislation and you talked about working with the local community. Can you talk about the, the work engaging with and collaborating with the community to further perhaps some of these larger initiatives that reach across the country? So at FCNL, Defense Committee on National Legislation, we have a pretty varied approach to this. Um, we put out blogs, updates, and newsletters to communicate with our constituencies around the issues of policy that we work on, um, because it's really important work that's happening. And a, a lot of the times, these things aren't uncovered. It's not really the 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 he said they said of Washington politics, where it's really just quoting uh, different people saying things as opposed to what's actually happening. Um, so we really talk about what's happening, um, and we and and we focus it on the important work that needs to happen. We also have action alerts where we put out a message to our network to ask them to reach out to the members of Congress, to activate them on specific issues of policy, um, asking members of Congress to take a certain action. Um, we also have Advocacy core, which are, um, this is a core group of normally students and young people who we pay to have them bring in people from their communities to lobby and build relationships with, the, build relationships with their members of Congress. And then, and then lastly, we have advocacy teams, which is really similar, but it's more older people who are asked to go to meetings to learn about the issues and also bring in people from, from, from their community to build relationships with their, with their members of Congress, because really what's going to make these laws, what's going to make these laws change most powerfully is going to be relationship building and storytelling, because that's going to cut through the partisanship, the narratives that come from Washington that say that this is the way things are, and we can't be doing things this way, or we can't be defunding the police when, when really we're just talking about reforming police or we can't have critical race theory in schools when they're gonna demonize what it is and not really talk about what it is. So you have these narratives and these, these perspectives that come from Washington that aren't really based in a lot of truth. It's kind of sometimes kernels of truth. And then it's morphed into this partisan weapon to beat the other side. So, I mean, I'm kind of getting off track here, but advocacy teams really cut through all that by an advocacy core by building those relationships and going back and going back and going back and sharing information and asking them to take actions, support legislation, make floor statements, vote for something in committee. These are things that they can do. <clears throat> and this is how FCNL um, sees this theory of change in affecting in affecting a difference in society through federal legislation. I like that emphasis as well on centering and leveraging the voices of folks who experience these things, right? When you were talking earlier about the, the violence interrupters, it's listening to folks who are from that community, who've experienced these things and understanding that they're the experts in their experience. And for these things to change, it has to sort of be bottom up. I think that's pretty transformative. Yeah, I agree. And I did have a follow-up question thinking of this work 
and how taxing it can be and draining, I'm, I'm sure. Maybe how it could be, we could look at Quakerism and, and maybe if there are any instances where, where your faith sort of supports you through that work. And also I wanted to bring in, cause I, I'm also a runner and you, you mentioned running in your, um, in your keynote and there could be a tie between the three, right? Like I know running can be a spiritual practice as well. Um, so maybe just kind of looking at, at self-care sort of behind this work that you do. Yeah, I think the practice of silent worship is really powerful to me. Um, it really helps to ground me and center me. That high you get after a run is something that I really chase, that I really long for, that really helps me too. And an old buddy of mine used to say, uh, and I really like the, I really like the analogy for obvious reasons. But um, this is about a marathon; it's not a sprint. And this work is something that lasts for decades, um, for centuries even. And this is about creating a change that's going to be here when I might not. And I need to be okay with that fact and understand that the work in and of itself is its own end. And it's really important that I'm doing it. Well, thanks for fighting the good fight. Thanks for doing what you do. Appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks for joining us and, and being a part of uh, this conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. This has been great. I really enjoyed that interview. And I think we started out talking about some pretty intimate stuff, right? Like his upbringing, you know, different identities and his experiences, you know, it's that's stuff that not a lot of people might feel comfortable sharing. So I was very appreciative that he opened up about that. And then kind of digging into Quakerism a little bit and his faith. And then towards the end, his, his work and his practice which were, were also, you know, the, the talking about abolition, reform, the work that he does, like that's not, you know, that's heavy stuff. But very impressive that, that, right, that work that he's doing within systems that are very resistant to any type of change. And so I enjoyed there at the end kind of talking about running and, and silent worship. A question for you. I mean, is silent worship different than meditation? So I'm a baby Quaker as well. So I don't know if I'm the expert um, or have the experience to adequately describe the process of Quakerism. Let's just say I think it probably took me several years before I could worship in silence without falling asleep. Um, so there, there's a skill definitely in sitting in meeting and staying awake, um, the general sense is that there are queries, which is essentially a question, right? And that you're discerning. And so you generally try to sit with something and, and different people approach it in different ways where there could be a question or a query that someone sits with. It could be something that's happening in the world and you're really just kind of marinating on that question that there's a focal point. Um, whereas I think meditation, there's 
a concentration on the breath. And that's not to say that there's, I think the beauty, at least what really resonates with me as, as a Quaker, is that you can have different people who actually subscribe to different religious backgrounds in a meeting. Because it's silent, you know, we, we have some members of our meeting who might sit there with rosary beads, or I can't remember the, the, the counterpart to Islam, um, but Pat will sit there with her beads, counting the beads. And it's very kind of like a very Muslim ritual or practice um, where somebody might meditate and they might sit there and they're focusing on their breath. Others might uh, be reading. Um, so you have, I guess, a wide diversity of, of practices. Although to Jose's point, the primary one is that there's silence. You're, you're, you're sitting in a circle and, and you're, you're sitting there in discernment. And, and what I actually value a lot is when people are moved to speak. Uh, and so it's not entire silence. I really appreciate the, the difference between you know, preacher or pastor where there's one person who's kind of in this hierarchical role who imparts their wisdom amongst all of the practitioners. In this case, it's very democratic in the sense that you might be moved to share something. You might be really marinating and thinking on something and something within you moves you to share that with the rest. And, and I found some very insightful gleanings from what others are sharing. I was just thinking of Jose's work and trying to work with Congress and then, right, where you have people together in a room and I was thinking of silent worship, which sounds like you have people together in a room doing very different things. And I wonder what it would be like in Congress if Congress were to sit and be quiet for a minute with a query and try and discern things. Because it, it's very different, right? When you're showing up in a space and you've been paid millions of dollars by different entities and your job is to push forward an agenda, you know, what would politics look like if maybe there were a bit of silent worship involved? <laughs> well, yeah, I'll do you one better. Like how much better would the world be if some of us would just shut up and listen, right? I mean, I tell my girls all the time that God made you with two ears and one mouth for a reason, to listen. And you think about communication. I think about this podcast and how when we first started, and I'm still trying to be a better listener, of course, I think I certainly can improve, but how often I would interview a guest and be so concerned with what the next question or comment is that I might say that I wasn't actually actively listening and didn't hear them say something that I then realized they said when I listened to the recording. And so the idea, the significance of listening as a part of communication, and, and that's the idea of the silent worship is that you are listening to God within, right? Like, I, and, I, and I enjoy, before we attended the Quaker meeting, and I, and I still listen to like Christian music oftentimes. Um, I, I get a little turned off by the Jesus this, Jesus that every few seconds. But the positive message, the music, it is very uplifting. And I can see how someone can find God through the music and through the, the, the beat and the percussion. That I can understand that. And yet, 
I think there's a power to listening to God when you're silent. And I think that's very true of, of prayer, of, of meditation, of contemplation, um, to discern the, the silent, still voice of God through silence when you're able to listen to your thoughts and be calm. And, and there's a university, Naropa University, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, where they start, and you're talking about administrators, right? Where, where a meeting begins with silence. And I don't think it's a Quaker university. I think it's actually more Buddhist in, in practice. I could be mistaken. But I think their professors might even like bow to the students. But it's a very intentional exchange where you are as much as possible trying to dismantle the systems of power, of hierarchy that may exist between student and professor, right? That we are on even playing fields, that we are learning from one another, um, that there's a, a high level of respect. Yeah, so I, I, I agree. I think that would be fascinating if within Congress, within a political realm, um, within law, if, if there could be some practice of, of silence. I love that idea of reflecting on different spaces and power dynamics, and then thinking about how communication works in those spaces, right? What's allowed, what's not allowed, maybe how that could be shifted. I think that's fascinating. And tying it back to the interview with Jose too, I think running, he, he mentioned sort of the running high. And I know for me running, it's one of the few times where things are quiet because we've talked before, right? I don't run with headphones, but it's a purposeful time where I'm out without any screens and can run and sort of reflect. And so the process of running, right? You're focused on your breath because you're catching your breath, but trying to find or make that intentional time where you don't have all of that input is different and I think it's tough and we have to be intentional in creating those spaces because oftentimes with screens, with email, with phone, Zoom, we're always connected and bombarded. And I know you've been camping a lot. I mean, that for you also must be a way to sort of get away from all of this input. Have you been finding sort of time to, to, to contemplate um, or worship when you've been out in nature over the past few months? Well, yeah, I think it's similar to running, right? You're, and, and I, I really enjoy trail running as opposed to running on pavement for, for probably the same reasons that you brought about camping. You're amongst the trees. Um, I was gonna ask you, and I haven't read Haruki Murakami, uh, but my wife Yalda has. He has a book, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, which is a memoir. Have you Have you read that? Yeah, I got a copy when I was in Mexico. I bought it in Spanish. And I was like, oh, this will be cool. like reading a Japanese author in Spanish. Um, yeah, that is cool. Did you fun. read it? I'm about halfway through. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And he's a gnarly and, like marathon runner too. And and Yalda was sharing that he talks about, well, well, the breath, right? When you're running, you breathe through the nose, out through the mouth, right? So there's this very intentional presence and awareness of breath, very similar to like meditation, whereas shallow breathing often occurs when we're not mindful and aware of our breath. And generally, I think the default is to breathe in through the mouth and out through the mouth. 
as opposed to being very aware and mindful. And so, yeah, I think to your question about camping, I think it's this mindfulness, it's this awareness that I am one with nature. I am in nature. Nature is within me just, and you can use God as a synonym for nature there as well, right? Like that this is all connected. It's this realization. And I think, you know, we most recently went to the Redwoods and I think when you're in these really awesome sites amongst trees that have existed for hundreds and hundreds of years, um, the, the awe, the magnificence, right, of, of beauty, I think, is this reminder. It's always there, right? Like, there's trees outside my backyard. How often am I aware of their presence? But then when you have these magnificent redwoods towering over you, I mean, you cannot help but be aware of their presence and your insignificance in the grand scheme of everything, right? I'm going to have a little anthroparky moment, but just thinking also about right. What did you say? Anthroparky. It's a new word that I've learned, like patriarchy, but anthro. So it's like humans at the center of everything, speciesism. Okay. I don't know if I've brought that up in the past. Episode. I hadn't heard that. That was new to me. Okay, I get it now. Okay, we're a little slow. Too, I got it. I was it. like, "Ooh, I like this because, right? Patriarchy is a system. Anthroparchy is like the system where the whole structure of attitudes and beliefs of humans is the center and exploiting right other species and 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 life yeah, forms. Like human centricism, same concept. Like right? anthro, anthropocentrism, I guess, was. Is another, uh, I think that's okay. more the ideology. And I think anthroparchy is like the system that we have in place. But I think, right, when you're in amongst trees that are hundreds or thousands of years old and are the largest organisms on the planet, like redwoods, which I love, you feel kind of insignificant. And I think there's something beautiful in that because it could be called God, right? And God is within all of us, or it could be nature, but we're a part of nature. And so much of the way we see ourselves is separate from or in sort of in combat with nature, fires, floods, volcanoes. It's like that's all a part of the system that we're in. Well, and there's the paradox. Right? There, there's the paradox of insignificance, right? Because I'm thinking about Jose's vulnerability and, and sharing, like when you think about imposter syndrome, this idea that I am inferior, that I am insignificant. And then the insignificance that we were just speaking of in terms of the grand scheme of the world and the universe, like that's sad. And, and I know I've felt it as well in, in this, in this, and I think many people at some point in their life, but I think it's magnified probably tenfold for women, for black people, for poor people, um, this, this idea of being inferior and insignificant relative to other human beings as opposed to relative to the universe could insignificant i don't know that insignificant and inferior are synonymous there because i could see it sort of either way sort of as like a great equalizer in terms of insignificant as humans because we're maybe instead of that idea of superiority it's like insignificant like I'm not bigger than that tree. I'm not bigger. I've seen whales last week and it, I felt something that is hard to, I can't put into words. Seeing a whale out there in the Monterey Bay do its thing in breaching 
such a different gigantic life in the ocean, right? Living a, a different experience on this planet, coming up for air, breaching, getting all the krill, just nonstop. And I was just sitting there like 45 minutes watching. And it's, it can be similar in the forest, right? But I, I could see it where thinking of ourselves as insignificant in terms of stepping back from this idea of like, we're the center of the universe is a great equalizer that is something that is beautiful. Right. I'm not important. I'm not more important than you. I'm not more important than the trees. Right. I'm part of all of this. I think the flip side is that we're all beautiful and significant. But it's not just me. Right. It's you. It's that person over there. It's that bird. It's that tree. And so either way, I see it sort of as this beautiful type of balance. I just might lean a little bit more towards maybe it's like my my skepticism or my cynical nature of like, I ain't shit. I find kind of comfort in that because if we have that, that imposter syndrome, it's also, you ain't shit. Wow. You have a new book and you're giving this presentation. You ain't shit. You're a person like I am. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. right. So I, I kind of like it like that. Maybe it's just sort of like the absurdist or I find humor in that. But I think, right, when you, when I look at like a factory farm and the way we treat all of these lives, if all of that suffering is okay to us, in my mind, it's like, is my life that valuable? If we can do that to thousands of cows right now and separate them from their calves, or if we can do this to all these, if we can cut down this forest, right? If we can go whaling, then who the fuck am I? And there's just this sense of like, I don't know, there's a reflection that I'm still sort of ruminating on there, but. Well, yeah, if we're able to recognize and value our insignificance, relative to the tree, the universe, the whale. I think of Jose's work, prisoners, the poor, the, the recognition that I am no more significant than the prisoner who cut people's hair, but now for whatever reason can't cut hair since he's been released. Um, and so to your point, I think earlier, the, the human condition, recognizing that we are humans, that I am no more significant than this person, regardless of how much money I may have, regardless of what my belief system might be, um, that I am as insignificant or significant as this individual, as the whale, the tree, and the universe. Yeah, and that idea of like perpetual punishment has to come from a sense of entitlement of others that, well, they did that, so they deserve that. And unfortunately, I think that's what you hear a lot of the justification of people who don't think that others should have a right to certain things. You know, it's dehumanizing. There's a sense of entitlement. And I think it's a lot of times people's own insecurity that I have to differentiate myself from them to feel better about myself. It's the bully on the school playground, right? It's, it's the same reason that I am quote unquote, civilized, law abiding citizen, you committed a crime. And so you must face perpetual punishment because it allows me to differentiate myself, why I am the saved and you are the lost. And that, and that's the distinction. Oh yeah. That's the other thing about God. I think he talks about in his keynote and, and many Christians, Catholics that God fearing, 
And that's something that has never resonated with me. This mm-hmm. idea that I should fear God. Right. Because God should be love. At least the, the attributes and the character characterization of this omnipresent being should be one of love. Yeah. Why would and, I fear that? And when Jose talked about what drew him to Quakerism, it really aligned with, I think, our talk on Sufism and radical love. But that love and that support that he experienced. So I see a lot of sort of parallels. And I think your work converting me, (laughs) it's up against those things, right? That I see the parallels. What I like about Quakerism, I also see in Buddhism. Absolutely. Islam and Sufism. And so it's like, okay, so what is... Well, that's that soul force oneness, right? It doesn't have to be one or the other. I right. mean, because it is all connected. And I think that's right. the, the, the appreciation for that animism. I think that's what connects them all, is that, that animistic ideology and perspective and, and appreciation for oneness and not this idea that I'm right, they're wrong, and I have to save or convert them. But, it, but it's an appreciation for the truth that exists within all of those faiths and, and recognizing that we each have something to learn, that we do not have all the answers. I think that the humility, the humility of, of, of realizing that, of, of even celebrating that, that I have so much yet to learn. Plus, I like doing the podcast because we get to learn from others and, and experience their stories their truth and I, and I really did appreciate Jose's uh, vulnerability right and I think that's the confidence when you get to and, and I feel like I've just recently late in life also got to that point of confidence of, of faith in self um, to where you can own your insecurities um, and in and in a paradoxically, when you own those insecurities, you're then secure in your insecurities, right? The value of, of who you are and perhaps what you have to share. Um, I think it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad we got to talk to him and he was able to kind of share some of the things that he decided to share with us. Forever grateful for that. Me too, me too. And that does it for episode two of the Western Friend podcast. Thank you so much to Jose Santos Was for joining us and for all the urgent work that he does. Don't forget to join us on September 14th for the next community conversation and be on the lookout for the next episode that will be released on October 2nd featuring Charisse Brock's keynote titled Courage, Fear, and Care, Creating Resilient Communities to Meet Climate Justice. Thank you for joining us on the Western Friend podcast. And we look forward to hopefully seeing you on September 14th. All information is in the episode notes. We'll see you there.